Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Here's a tale of two investors, neither of whom knew each other. Born in Illinois, Grace Groner was orphaned at age 12, a single all her life. She lived mostly alone in a one-bedroom house and worked a whole career as a secretary. A lovely and happy person, Grace lived a humble and quiet life. At 25 in 1935, in the depths of the Great Depression, she got a job as a secretary at Abbott Pharmaceuticals, where she worked for the next 43 years. After her death in 2010, at 100 years old, she gifted $7.2 million to a scholarship program at her alma mater to help students with big dreams but with little money. People were shocked, as you can imagine, at her wealth. But there was no secret to her wealth, nor was there uh, an inheritance that was involved. Grace had bought three shares of Abbott's stock worth $180 in the first year she worked there. That's the equivalent of $3,200 in today's uh, terms. She held on to it and reinvested all of the dividend payments she received. Weeks after her death, an unrelated story hit the news. Richard Fuscone, I think that's how you say his name, Richard Fuscone, former chairman and president of Merrill Lynch's Money Markets, Inc., educated at Harvard, declared personal bankruptcy while fighting off foreclosure on two homes he owned. And one of them was nearly 20,000 square feet and had a 60,000 per 66,000 per month mortgage. How can you imagine 66,000 per month mortgage? He stood before the bankruptcy judge and said, "I have been devastated by the financial crisis." And the financial crisis he was referring to was the one that took place between 2007 and 2009. The only source of liquidity I ha- is whatever my wife is able to sell in terms of personal furnishings. This is the guy who was so successful in the investment industry that he retired in his 40s to pursue personal and charitable interests. I think they're extraordinary stories, aren't they? Because in what fields, what other fields would you have a Grace Groner outperforming a Richard Fuscombe, right? Can you imagine a Grace Groner performing heart surgery better than a Harvard-trained cardiologist? But these stories happen only in investing. Why? As Morgan Housel, an expert on behavioral finance, explains, investing is not the study of finance. It's the study of how people behave with money. Grace and Richard show that managing money isn't necessarily about what you know, It's about how you behave. Now, Morgan is partially right in his analysis of Grace and Richard, but the difference between them is much deeper than a behavioral issue. It is an issue of idolatry. Money is one of the most common counterfeit gods there is. And that is our focus this morning as we continue with our sermon series based on the book Gods at War, Defeating the Idols That Battle for Your Heart. Now, it must be said that even a cursory look at the Scriptures will tell us that God is not opposed to affluence or wealth or money per se. For instance, one of the things He told the people of Israel was when they come into wealth, 
when they come into abundance and prosperity and blessings in the promised land, they were not to get proud and think this was of their doing. God said in Deuteronomy 8, chapter chapter 8, verses 17 to 18, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hand or my intellect or my degree or my financial prowess has produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. So that was God's caution, not about wealth per se, but them thinking that it's by their own sheer willpower that they have arrived at the wealth that they have. Don't forget the Lord. See, money only becomes a problem when we're servant to it rather than masters of it. When we love it and trust it more than God. When, it, when money controls us and motivates us rather than God. Money becomes a problem when we are stingy. When money becomes a necessity and our relationship with God becomes a luxury. Money becomes a problem when we love money and use people rather than you love people and use money. When we spend money we haven't earned to buy things we don't need in order to impress people that we don't like, that's when money becomes a problem. Money becomes a problem when, we, when it becomes the source of our identity, our security, our worth, our meaning, our hope, and happiness. Money becomes a problem when we hoard money and spend it all on ourselves. Money becomes a problem when we become wealthy through unjust and corrupt means. Paul explains in 1 Timothy 6 verse 10, for the love of money, not money per se, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Another word for the love of money is greed. Now, who could forget the many griefs that came from the Great Recession that occurred between 2007 and 2009? It was a colossal financial and economic collapse that cost many ordinary people their jobs, their life savings, their homes, or all three of them. The contributing factors were rock-bottom interest rates, very lax uh, lending standards that fueled the housing bubble in the U.S. and elsewhere. The intentions were good. Faced with the bursting of the dot-com bubble, corporate accounting scandals, and the September 11 terrorist attacks, the U.S. Federal Reserve lowered the interest rates from 6.5% to 1%, 6 6.5% in the year 2000 to 1% in June 2003. The aim was to inject confidence in the economy by making money available to businesses and consumers at bargain rates. This jacked up home prices as borrowers took advantage. Even those with poor or no credit history were able to get into the housing market. There's an old saying on Wall Street that says that the market is driven by just two emotions, greed and fear. While it is a simplification, there's a great truth, a great deal of truth to it. That's what financial institutions preyed on during this time. Human's nature 
greed and fear, the two emotions that drive us into the arms of the God of money. Greed and fear have the same message. Greed says, you do not have enough. You need to get more. Fear says, what you have, you could lose it all. Therefore, get more. So people were taking more and more risk in the hope of getting rich as quickly as possible and getting ahead. In the end, people found themselves owing more money, found themselves owing more on their mortgages than their homes were worth. When you say to yourself, I want to be a millionaire, a multi-millionaire by such an age. When you say, I want my property investment portfolio to be worth X million of dollars by this year, you are in danger of wandering from the faith and piercing yourself with many griefs. How about a more subtle financial goal? I want to pay off my house by the time I'm 40. Well, on the surface, it looks like a reasonable goal, like a sound goal, because the quicker you pay off your mortgage, you're actually saving, right? But the question is, at what expense? The question is, at what expense? How would you do this? Take a second job? Take a third job? Take a fourth job? Work very long hours until your health and relationships suffer? See, when challenged, people justify by saying, what is wrong with financial freedom, Mark? That's the reason why I'm doing it. It's for financial freedom. There's nothing wrong. Except you need to realize that rewards never come free. There is a price to be paid. The counterfeit of God of money will, will make sure of that. You see, financial goals are often not the problem. But who and what are behind these goals? Is it God and his values? Or is it greed, the idol of money? And it's not always easy to discern the idol of money operating in our lives. You see, in my years of pastoring, both at this church and before, uh, not that I was a pastor before, but I, went, I was involved with pastoring work, but in a different context. I've not been able to recall one single conversation where people have said to me, Mark, I spend too much money on myself. I have a problem with greed. I think my greed is harming my relationship with God, my relationship with my wife, my relationship with my children, and my relationship with my broader family. What should I do? Ian, have you ever had a conversation like that with a parishioner that confessed greed, right? People come and confess anxiety, come and confess, you know, health issues, come and confess relational issues, marriage issues, that they're struggling at work, that they have financial issues. Please pray, you know, I don't know when the next bill is going to come from. See David Young, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't, I have not been able to recall someone saying, I've got a problem with greed. I need to repent from greed. How do I get right with God with my greed? Can you ever, re ever remember repenting of greed? Lord, I'm sorry for my greed. <laughs> I don't think you. Now, why is this? 
I just think we find it hard to see greed in ourselves, right? For instance, with the financial goals that I spoke of earlier, we naturally think we're being responsible, right? And planning for the future. You know, I'm planning ahead. You know, my goal is you know, this, this, this. By the time I'm 40, by the time I'm 50, by the time I'm 60, I want to be able to retire. You know, things are very expensive. I want my children to get the best possible education, blah, 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 blah. Sounds reasonable, sounds responsible. It's forward planning, etc., etc. Greed as a possible motive. We'd be offended if someone suggested that. And by the way, you don't have to be rich to be greedy. Not all rich people are greedy. And not all poor people are generous. People who have little can be infected by greed just as much as rich people. The other reason why greed is not on our radar is because greed is perceived as a nothing to worry about sin compared to, say, sexual sins. Oh, that's different. Sexual sins, oh, that's, that's, that's on number one, that's on God's number one hit list. And Christians have a thing about sexual sin, right? We camp around with ugh, homosexuality, ah! The placard, ah! Be damned, you homosexuals! You go to hell, you burn. Oh, greed, oh, well, that's just human nature. A little bit of greed, that's okay. It's perceived as a nothing to worry about sin. And yet Jesus had more to say about greed than about sexual sins. He said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. It's inevitable. God doesn't even want a hierarchical list. You see, we think if we, go, we put God first and then money second whatever. Jesus says God should be the list. He doesn't want to be on the list amongst other things. He wants to be the list. Remember I said last week, if we love God with all of our hearts and make that a priority, then the second commandment will follow. If we don't get the first one correct, like buttoning our first button, everything will be out of order. And this is what Jesus is saying. You cannot serve both God and money. According to Jesus, God's chief competitor, whom we may ascribe divine attributes to, is money. And don't we ascribe divine attributes to money? Don't we turn to money as our salvation? Don't we look to money to save us? In Luke 12, 15, Jesus again speaking, watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. In other translations, there's the word covetousness, the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. Watch out and be on your guard against all kinds and all manners of greed. For man's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. The first statement is remarkable. Think of adultery, another sin that the Bible warns us against. You won't find Jesus saying, watch out, be on guard against adultery. Why? Because he doesn't need to. Because we know exactly what we're doing even before we go to bed with another man's spouse. Right? We don't go halfway. Oh, I, I think I'm committing adultery against you. You already know what you're doing before the act. 
So Jesus doesn't have to say, watch out, be on guard. With greed, it is a lot more subtle. That's why Jesus says, be on guard, be alert, watch out. Because the sin of greed is very, very subtle. Either we can't see it or we don't want to see it. And that is what makes greed, I think, a deadlier sin because it is concealed better. It is hidden better. It, is, it can be couched as responsibility, planning for the future. In the second statement, it says, your identity, security, and significance is not determined by what you earn or own. You are not what you earn. You are not what you own. Praise the Lord. To the degree we get this, the God of money will lose its grip on us. And it is interesting to note, too, that the passage right after Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus warns his listeners about anxiety over their possessions. What does that mean? What Jesus is saying is this, that greed is not only the love of money, greed is also an excessive anxiety over money. See, when you think about money all of the time, you could be guilty of greed. And Jesus wasn't the only one who addressed greed. Paul confesses in Romans chapter 7 that had it not been the law that said, you shall not covet, he would not have known what sin is. In Colossians 3, 5 and Ephesians 5, 5, he said that uh, greed is idolatry. The apostle James writes in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. The fights and quarrels amongst the believers that James was writing to clearly have an economic dimension to it. Yeah? So they're obsessed with accruing wealth so that they may spend it on their pleasures. And we looked at that word last week. The word pleasure is the word hedone, from which we get the word hedonism or hedonism. The notion that the ultimate goal in life is pleasure. So evidently, some in James' audience were so keen to get ahead financially that they didn't care who they stepped on to get there. Now, if you remember in chapter 2 of James, we're told that some in his audience were publicly uh, favoring the rich. Remember that? They were favoring the rich over the poor. Uh, they were not helping the poor. They looked at the poor with some disdain. Now we know why. It's money. It's greed. They didn't want to endear themselves to poor people. You can't go anywhere with poor people. You're not going to advance your career. You're not going to advance your, your, your business interests by mixing with the poor. So save the best seats for the rich. 
because if we endear ourselves to the rich people, we might get more offerings. See? That's what was happening. And they were closing their hearts to the poor. Money was the reason why they were making these choices. Money was their idol. When we pursue wealth at the expense of relationships, when we acquire wealth through ungodly and unjust means, which is, which is what James writes about in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, we need to know that is one of the most repugnant acts in the Bible. The idolatry of money is viewed by James as nothing less than friendship with the world, nothing less than infidelity toward God. We make ourselves enemies of God. God stands in opposition to us. So what do we do? In Luke 19, we come across Zacchaeus, a short, wealthy, but a hated individual. He was hated not for his wealth, because there were many Jews at the time who were wealthy. He was hated because of the manner in which he acquired his wealth. You see, he was a tax collector working on behalf of the Romans who levied oppressive taxes on colonies as a means of increasing the wealth of Rome and its citizens. In addition to the Roman taxes, a tax collector like Zacchaeus could add whatever surcharge he deemed appropriate. He could levy some more uh, taxes on top of what the Romans were billing the Jews. And this comes with the backing of the military. So it's a win-win situation for guys like Zacchaeus. That's how they got rich, and that's why they were despised. Zacchaeus risked everything. He risked hated by his fellow citizens. He risked everything. Why? Money. The love of money. Then one day, an encounter with Jesus dealt, dealt, dealt a death blow to the idol of money in his life. We read, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to grumble. He is gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, we're told that because he was a short fellow, he had to climb a tree to get a good view. Or well, he decided to climb a tree to get a view good view, an act that would have invited a lot of ridicule. For a culture where honor and dignity mattered more, why would he do this, given that he was already despised? Why would a grown-up man climb up a tree, you know, dangling like a child? You know, that's just not honorable. Well, Luke tells us that he wanted to meet Jesus, but him climbing up the tree tells us that he was Desperate. It was keen as mustard to see Jesus, just catch a glimpse of Jesus. Something about Jesus that he had heard, his teaching, either directly and, and on other occasions or through people who have heard him, just moved him and intrigued him. He had to see him for himself. 
And seeing a crowd of mostly respectable religious types who looked down on tax collectors and prostitutes, Jesus singled them out to talk to. And not only did he single Zacchaeus out to talk to, he says, I will have a meal with you. A huge gesture of acceptance and friendship in that culture. Note that, Jesus, that Zacchaeus did not invite Jesus into his life. It was Jesus who invited Zacchaeus into his. That's so typical of Jesus. That's grace right there for you. Jesus knew how his action contradicted everything that the crowd knew about religion. See, Jesus was a holy man, and he was not supposed to mix with sinners, especially tax collectors. The crowd was offended. Jesus didn't care. And Zacchaeus was, was of course, absolutely delighted by Jesus' action, that Jesus would choose him. The worst of sinners to eat with just melted his heart, just moved him deeply. The impact of God's grace was immediate. Zacchaeus wanted to follow Jesus, but he knew he had to repent from the worship of money and the deeper issues connected with it. This is what happened in Luke chapter 19, 19 verses 8 to 10. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Mosaic law only required 10%. But Zacchaeus promised to give 50% of his income to the poor. Zacchaeus' second promise was about justice, doing right by those whom he had cheated. Again, the Mosaic law required that if you were guilty of cheating someone, you had to uh, compensate people with an interest of 20%. Here he offers four times the amount from those he had stolen. That's 300%. See, generosity is the antidote to greed. Don't miss this vital point. If you want to keep your heart free from the power of money, free from guilt, then learn to give generously, learn to give joyfully, learn to give willingly, not begrudgingly. If you give begrudgingly today, if you have been giving begrudgingly, know that it's not an acceptable gift to God. God would rather that you keep the money to yourself than give because, I suppose I have to. Otherwise, Mark will be on my case. Well, I've never been on anyone's case for your information. If that is the kind of attitude you have, you give because you have to, I'll tell you right now, God would rather you keep it because it gives him no pleasure to receive such a gift like that. Give joyfully, give willingly, and give generously. In response, Jesus proclaimed, salvation has come to this house. Notice Jesus did not say salvation will come to this house, but that it has come to this house. And what does that mean? It means this, that God's salvation comes not in response to a changed life, but rather a changed life comes in response to God's salvation offered freely as a gift. That's the gospel right there. 
Through his encounter with Jesus and his teaching, Zacchaeus realized that while he was financially wealthy, he was spiritually bankrupt. But in Jesus, he has received freely an unimaginable spiritual riches. Because of his sense of worth, significance, and identity, he will no longer root it in uh, we're no longer rooted in, in, in money, but in Christ, his attitude toward money was transformed. Money became a tool for doing good for God's glory. He went from uh, oppressing the poor and, and the vulnerable to being their champion and their advocate. He changed from a person who accrued wealth at the expense of people to a person who served others at the expense of wealth. The idol of money had been replaced with Jesus as Lord. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty may become rich. Jesus gave up all of his treasure in heaven in order to make us his treasure, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Knowing this ought to move us to make him our treasure. This is the only way we can root out the idol of money in our lives. It can't be removed. It can only be replaced by the one who, though rich, became poor so that in him we might become rich. Keller writes, to the degree that you grasp the gospel, money will have no dominion over you. Think on his costly grace until it changes you into a generous people. In closing, we read in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So, for application this week, number one, what are some characteristics of the idol of money? You can ask the, the following series of questions. How often do you compare what you have and how much you make to others? Is that something that is on your mind regularly? How much are you making? How much is Bob Jones down the road is making? What car is he driving? I like a better car, so on and so forth. This is contentment. Number two, a struggle for you. From one to ten, how do, you, how do you rank yourself in the contentment department? How much anxiety do finances add to your life? To what extent are your dreams and goals driven by money? And lastly, what is your attitude toward giving? Do you love to give? Do you joyfully give? Do you willingly give? Or are you a stingy giver, a begrudging giver? Number two, read, meditate, and respond to 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and Hebrews 13, 5. And lastly, during this week, cultivate contentment and gratitude as you walk over every square feet of your house, acknowledge that everything you have is God's. If you decide to have a bath today in God's bathtub, thank you.
When you decide to use some cold water today to shower, that's God's water. Acknowledge it. Cultivate contentment and gratitude. And then rededicate everything back to God for his use, for his glory. Okay? So three applications this week, simple application that you can do. Let us pray. Lord, help us realize that not just the idol of money, but any idols that we've spoken of so far, Lord, it cannot be removed. It must be replaced. If we remove any idols of our lives and do not replace it with you, we're told. Jesus told of this person who was delivered of evil spirits, but he didn't replace his, his, his home, his inner home with, with you. And then the evil spirits came back with seven others. And so, Lord, help us see that, that you're not just wanting idols in our lives to be removed. In fact, the idols in our lives cannot be removed. It must be, repl be replaced by you. Just as Jesus said, you will either serve God or serve money. Grant us the grace. Grant us, Lord, the power to choose you, to worship you, and not money and not anything else. And help us see the joy that comes from doing that. The joy of having you in our lives. The joy of delighting in you. Because the promise is we will receive the desires of our heart. And the desires of our heart are not things. Whatever we think it is that's going to make us happy and fulfilled and peaceful and whatever. The great longing of our heart is you. The great longing of our heart can only be fulfilled by you. That's why you say delight in the Lord and the desires of our heart will be fulfilled. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.